When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Tomato, don't you like folks? Oh, I like them fine. But a computer takes less space. I've got my own system. Books, young man. Books, thousands of them. If time wasn't so important, I'd show you something. My library. Thousands of books. Well, welcome everyone to this special sub show. We've got to think of something other to call something to call it other than sub show. Sub sounds lesser, and that's certainly not the case. This is our first episode of Positively Trek Book Club, where we are talking about Star Trek books. You may remember us on Literary Treks back on the Trek FM network. This is very similar to that. We're going to be talking about Star Trek novels, both old and new. And for this, our first episode, I am, of course, joined, as always, by Bruce Gibson, my co-host. Yeah, I'm so glad to be here. I'm so glad to start the book club. We did so many things on literary tracks. We're going to continue that tradition here and even go beyond that. So yeah, books, comics, all in this book club show that's part of the Positively Track podcast. Exactly. And so for this first episode, I thought we should do something special, and Bruce agreed with this, our choice for the first episode, to do a classic Star Trek novel, one that I have loved for many, many years, and that is Strangers from the Sky by Margaret Wander Bonanno. And additionally, we are so privileged and honored to be able to have the author herself, Margaret Wander Bonanno, here on the show with us. So Margaret, welcome. You pronounced my name correctly. I'm feeling very welcome. Thank you. Yay. Oh, excellent. <laughs> no, for sure. I've I've long been a fan of your work and Strangers from the Sky. I, I'm just I've got my copy right here in front of me, and I opened it up. And I used to think that the first novel I owned was uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation novel by Peter David called Q Squared. But I'm looking at this and. I must have had this way before that because it's got my old, old address on a little book plate in there. And it's apparently the uh, the third printing of this book, uh, originally published in 1987. Uh, so I'm, I'm so excited to be able to talk to someone I read, uh, you know, that was very important to me and kind of forming my whole idea of what this whole Star Trek thing is. Um, do you have the step back cover, the, the extra piece in the front where you open it up and you 
because that was the original printing. Then then they got cheap. Yeah, that's no, what I this, have. This one's yeah. This one's just the. I think it's the third printing, and ah, it's just okay. the yes. oh, yeah. single page. I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, I have that original one where you open up the cover and then there's the full cover image right behind mm -hmm. it. I love that, and not only that. So yeah, I read it back in 1990, somewhere around there, when I started reading Star Trek novels, and I also own it as an ebook when it was republished in what 20 2005 2008 or um, something like that it was probably for one of the anniversaries because they did yes. a reissue of the soft cover as well so yeah it was the the 40th anniversary there 2006 you go. Oh, God, yeah ancient 2006. history so i have that as an ebook <laughs> and i have the audiobook by oh wow by george takei and leonard nimoy which i listened to again this weekend after reading the book Oh, I mean, it's just yeah, like we I, have to talk about that. That was the we most do. Incredible. We'll hit on that later okay. for sure. Absolutely. Well, before we dive into this book, I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about kind of first how you became a fan of Star Trek and how you got involved in the Star Trek book world. Well, the answer to the first question is one word: Spock. Um, <laughs> the answer to the second one is. Uh, I started out as a quote unquote mainstream novelist. Um, this was late 70s when feminist fiction was a thing. Then along came the Reagan years, and my publisher went, it was a small offshoot of what was it, Playboy Press. They filed for bankruptcy. Basically, my editor, who shall remain nameless, absconded with everybody's royalties and took off for Vegas. Oh, wow. And, you know, I'm sitting here saying this clown owes me $6,000, which God bless my agent. He died a couple of years ago, but he was my agent throughout. He went after the guy, filed a lawsuit, got me my money, but like four years later. So in the meantime, it's like, okay, there's my husband's income and I'm going to have to go get a job. So I got a job. As a secretary, uh, I can type fast. That's my other talent. And it was one of those jobs where it's like, okay, you type three letters in the morning and then look busy. In case the CEO comes around, look busy. Don't just sit at your desk. You can't sit there and read at your desk, which is what I was doing. If, <laughs> if the phone rings, answer the phone. All right. And it's like, okay, I've got this wonderful selectric typewriter. I'll look busy. I wrote several novels um, in that phase, but you know, nobody was buying. And at one point, my agent took me out to lunch. We had a meeting with somebody else for a mainstream novel. And she invited us to the office. We sat there and chatted. And she said, well, I haven't read your manuscript yet. This, this is typical. And I was ready to punch her. And my agent was kicking me under the, the desk, like control yourself, took me out for coffee and said, okay, what else have you got in your bag of tricks? What else can you write? And he was thinking romances. I said, nah, uh, 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 uh. I don't read romances. I don't know that. And he said, well, what about mysteries? I said, I can't think backwards. Maybe now <laughs> I could, you know, okay, this is the killer and I'm going to, but I couldn't do that at the time I was, oh, what, 31 years old? No, a little older than that. But I said, I know Star Trek. And he said, oh, God. Um, he said, first of all, that's an offshoot of science fiction. Everybody hates science fiction. Um, again, this is the early 80s. And he said, there are only six books a year. I said, do you know somebody? Oh, of course, I know so-and-so at Pocket Books. I said, let me put something together. And 
I wrote basically a fanzine, a great big fat fan novel, fangirl novel about Spock, which I knew would not sell, but it said, hey, buddy, I can do the characters. I've got the voices. I've had the voices in my head since I was 16. I can do this. So my agent sent it out. The guy bought us lunch. Editors used to buy lunch in those days. And he said, you know, I can't buy this. Um, it's against canon, that, that ugly word canon. He said, I can't use this. Can you write me something else? I said, give me a couple of months. Took a little longer than that. Meanwhile, said editor had left. Somebody else took his place. She read what would grow up to be Dwellers in the Crucible. Uh, she left. Another editor came in. And she said, well, I found the corrections that my predecessor left you, but I can't find a whole manuscript. On my lunch hour in this windowless room, everybody else went out to lunch and I had to mind the phones, which ran like three times in an hour. So I'd tippy-toe over to the copier and make lots and lots of copies. And the boss would come through every so often. He says, why are we always out of copy paper? <laughs> Gee, Raj, I don't know. So then sent this thing up to, actually, I think I hand-delivered it because I was working on Wall Street. Took the subway up to Pocketbooks on my lunch hour, delivered this thing. And they finally, when did I start writing that? 1981, I think? No, a little later than that. Anyway, at least two years, they finally bought the manuscript for Dwellers in the Crucible. By now, Dave Stern was the editor at Pocket. Did he take me out? No, he did not take me out to lunch, but we sat in his office and he said, what else you got? I said, well, you know, there's this big old trade book manual that was put out by you guys a few years ago. Um, oh, what was it called? The um, Anyway, Rick Sternback did the illustrations, the um, Star Trek timeline, something like that. See, this is yeah. my memory's going. Um. But there, and of course... I'm poor at this point, so I'm sneaking into Forbidden Planet and reading this in one of the back aisles uh, instead of buying it because it was a whole $12. Um, was it the, the Star Trek Space Flight chronology? Right. Thank you. Bless you. Yes, yes it was. I highlighted that because I had a feeling that was going to come up. <laughs> oh, oh, excellent. <laughs> brilliant. Okay, so there was a section that said that the first contact between humans and Vulcans took place when a Vulcan scout ship got lost in the asteroid belt or something, and a ship came from Earth and repaired their engines and start, and off they went. And I said, well, that's interesting, but what if an actual first contact had happened a few years before? And Dave said, what have you got in mind? I said, well, I am not a scientist. I'm an English major. I can't do the techno babble. You got other people to do that. However, at that point, did I know Rick Sternback at that point? No, I hadn't met him yet, so I couldn't tap his brain. And then later on, um, after Strangers got published, I got a fan letter from a NASA, a NASA physicist, for crying out loud. And he said, I loved your book, good characterizations, but you made an error on page 294. And he corrected me. And it's like, you are going to be my go-to from now on. If I've got a physics question, Use small words. So, yeah, he's, he's <laughs> been my buddy ever since. But, okay, so I put this thing together. Dave bought it. I went home and did I go home? No, I was, was I still at the, um, 
yeah, still at the secretarial job, wrote this thing. And of course, again, I don't like to mention names. Um, there was a person at Paramount who did not, he was working for Roddenberry. He was actually Roddenberry's mouthpiece at that point. You know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Roddenberry was very ill at that point. This guy was his mouthpiece. He was making decisions. He was writing memos and signing Roddenberry's name to them. He did not believe women should write Star Trek, period, full stop. Um, yeah. And, yeah, so he sent, no, actually, it wasn't on Strangers. He hadn't, this person at Paramount hadn't quite gotten his wings yet, but there were like six changes in the entire manuscript. You got this timeline wrong. This should happen before that. Minor stuff went through, sailed through, hit the New York Times bestseller list for five weeks. That was, I don't know if you guys are West Wing fans. If, I am, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, C.J. Craig in the scene where Danny's saying, look, what are you going to do when you don't have this job anymore? Will you jump off a cliff with me? And I love Allison Janney. Um, she's mm -hmm. just, she can do no wrong. And she looks at him and she says, don't you realize I'm living the first line of my obituary right now? And I said, yeah, strangers from the sky is going to be the first line of my obituary because it's been a roller coaster since then. Um, but yeah, it just came together. I don't know how. Um, it's, it's out there somewhere. Star Trek is out there. We're just kind of dipping our hands in the stream as it flows by, you know. It was fun to write. Uh, when you lose track of time, when it's like, oh, crap, it's two o'clock in the morning. Maybe I should go to bed. That's when the writing really works. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I really think you captured something in that stream of Star Trek with this novel. And and like I said, it's one that's captured my imagination from the very early days. And, you know, having read numerous other Star Trek novels since then, and, and kind of looking at this years later uh, through a different lens, one of the things that really jumped out to me is this concept of a book within a book. And I really love how this is laid out. Like there's a different font for, you know, strangers from the sky in quote marks, the, uh, the novel that's published in the 23rd century that tells this story of the, the actual first contact between Vulcans and humans. And, you know, another famous uh, example is The Final Reflection, John M. Uh, Ford's novel. Yes, 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 yes. Harv Bennett used to say, if you're going to steal, steal from the best. <laughs> um, the Final Reflection is still one of my favorites. Oh, me too, yeah. yeah. And I thought, wow, look at what, and you could get away with stuff like that in those days. It was brilliant. Uh, I never met Mike Ford. Tragic, tragic, died too soon, but... Oh, I love that book, and um, one of Diane Duane's early ones, and I cribbed from her, too, um, My Enemy, My Ally. Oh, yeah. Mm, yeah. So, yeah, uh, you can blame Mike Ford for the book <laughs> within a book. You know, it's like those Russian dolls, one inside the other. And because, again, I can't do time travel on the level of physics, so if I have this fiction within a fiction, and... I'm getting ahead of the questions you sent me. Parnab is based on T.H. White's Merlin. Merlin lived backwards. And, of course, Doctor Who. I've now become a doctor. No, 
not a Doctor Who fan. I'm a Peter Capaldi fan. You can cut that out. <laughs> but I started watching New Who because of him, you know, leading up, binge watched all the other guys. And River Song is living backwards. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a theme. And I don't, oh, this is sacrilege, but I don't read science fiction. I read spy novels. I read murder mysteries. Um, just to get my head somewhere else. Which is interesting because you use the idea from a mythological character, which isn't the type of books it sounds like you read. Oh, well, I did. Um, I think I read that one in high school. And okay. Yeah, that was the Once and Future King, I think. Mm -hmm. And then, well, it's the Arthur trilogy, but it's from the point of view of Merlin. And I cannot think of the author's name. I've just blanked on it. But yeah, woman writer, prodigious. I, I've got her on my Kindle, and I'm going to get back to it one of these days. But it's all from Merlin's point of view. And to me, Spock is a Merlin character. Kirk can be awfully annoying. But Spock is the genius. He's the power behind the throne. And he was always my focus. And, you know, I used to have great discussions with my high school friends. Well, oh, I think Kirk is so dreamy. It's like, eh, you know, he's just a typical guy. Um, but <laughs> Spock, on the other hand, and I did meet Leonard Nimoy many, many years later, and I told him that, and he, he had that sneaky little smile. He enjoyed that. Um, but, yeah, uh, so, as I say, blame Mike Ford. Blame the fact that I did read a lot of, um, not a lot, but the classic fantasy novels, the ones that made the bestseller list, because to me, character is the thing. Mm. I can always float a story if I like the characters. I can't do the science stuff. I really can't. When we're kind of going to be jumping all over this novel, I think, because there's so many really interesting aspects and pieces of this. And when you said that Spock is kind of the Merlin character, that really, that, that struck a chord with me. I'm thinking like, towards the very end of the novel. And again, apologies to our listeners for jumping all around. But um, when Spock of the the present timeline in the book goes back to Egypt and encounters the kid that was uh, Parneb and he gives him the, the peace symbol medallion, I, I, I got that like kind of this thought of Spock as a timeless character that, you know, like him just kind of exists throughout time. I, I, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but that's that came into my head well, it, when you were it, saying that. It does. There's a, a name, a term for it in literature, which of course I can't remember either. But my late husband was a big Moby Dick fan, and he, he was comparing Spock to uh, Queequeg in Moby Dick. You know, the mysterious stranger, uh, the alien, the one who doesn't fit in with the rest of the crew, and who, of course, is a mentor to the young Ishmael. Um, it, it kind of goes through a lot of different kinds of literature. But I can't stand Moby Dick, but never mind. <laughs> um, it's, it's a guy novel. You know, I don't know. I just couldn't get into it. I did read it, but it's like, okay, moving on. Or as Doctor Who would say, shut up and get to the whale. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of Moby Dick, actually, that kind of transitions really nicely into the next question. Uh, you know, one of the things about Star Trek novels is that they are not considered canon. They're, there's no responsibility for the show or the movies to kind of adhere to what they lay out. 
Uh, so, of course, years later, in 1996, we get the film Star Trek First Contact, hence my very clever Moby Dick tying in there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Bruce has a really good question in the notes here, um, wondering how you feel that this novel holds up uh, kind of in the face uh, after in the face of Star Trek First Contact after what they kind of established about First Contact, which, of course, contradicts the spaceflight chronology and, and all this other kind of beta canon stuff that people uh, have yeah and then there's carbon creek but um mm -hmm. i was i was wanting to get to that I too about that, yeah. <laughs> well okay this is going to be a short answer because for me star trek is the three original seasons and three of the six movies uh i watched next generation <sighs> mostly because i was videotaping it for a friend overseas Never got into it, didn't care about the characters. You know, Patrick Stewart's a brilliant man, but he's all voice. You know, he's that classically trained Shakespearean actor, and I'm not impressed. I did watch Deep Space Nine, uh, was fond of the characters, but I don't need to see it again. I have the three original seasons. To me, the triptych of Star Trek II, three, and four. That's it. That's all you need to know about Trek. And yes, this is sacrilege. I have not seen Abrams' Trek, period, full stop. It doesn't, you know, I heard a lot of negative stuff about it, and I don't usually go with things like that. But it's like, no, this, this is my childhood here. You're not going to take my memory of those characters. And yeah, okay, the effects were cheesy and so on. So yeah, I think I watched first contact once and i was so distracted by yes james Crom cromwell is a brilliant actor but couldn't they have found somebody who sort of remotely looked like the original <laughs> zephram cochran it was so jarring and it was the radiation that did it to him <laughs> <laughs> yes so we'll go with that <laughs> but i mean also in the original episode it was established that he was an alpha centaurian not a human who ended up living on Alpha Centauri. So I was sitting there taking notes like, nope, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. And as I say, I watched it once when it first came out. I don't remember the details. Um, so, you know, it was nice to be able to stretch the franchise. It was also annoying to be told, well, you're not canon. And P.S., again, you can bleep this out. Roddenberry's making more from these than you are. Um, that was disturbing. But, you know, we had a lot of leeway, particularly under Mimi Panich, who was my final editor on Dwellers in the Crucible. That would never have seen the light of day because it's like, well, where's Kirk and Spock? You've got these two original characters, which is what got me in trouble with Probe. But let's not even go into that because that's not my book. Yeah, we'll, we'll explain that later. Or do you want to explain that now? <laughs> well, I'm not going to explain it because we'll use up the rest of the time. I know, it would take some time, I guess. <laughs> tell people to go to my website and uh, I tell the story there. And it's, mm, I can't tell it in 50 words or less. It was trashed. Um, mm -hmm. It was salvaged by the late Gene Dewey's lovely, lovely man. We got to be friends on the basis of that. And in fact... We were both invited to a fan-run con in Portage, Indiana. I didn't even know there was such a place. We did a panel called He Said, She Said, where I told my side, he told his side. And among the guests uh, 
were Gary Lockwood, Paul Carr, also a lovely man, and Jack Donner, who became my partner for the next 22 years. Uh, he passed away in September. But yeah, so kismet, there are no coincidences. If Gene and I had not been invited to that con, I would not have met Jack. As a matter of fact, Grace Lee Whitney was supposed to be the guest. She couldn't make it. So their respective manager got Paul and Jack to come instead. So ah, a love story. But yeah, tell them to go and go to my website, margaretwanderedbonano.com, and I tell the whole story about Probe, which was not my book, uh, but Gene salvaged it. It was literally in shreds by the time it was handed off to him. So, yeah, 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 mm -hmm. you're right. I, I've read that on your uh, website, and I think your original copy of Probe is on there too, right? No, no? oh, yes, Music of the Spheres, yeah. Music uh -huh. of the Spheres, right. That's the original. Actually, I have that. I. <laughs> I, I have uh, it as a PDF, but yeah. So if anybody who's listening doesn't know what we're talking about, yeah, in Star Trek Four, remember the probe that comes in that's you know going towards Earth, making the whale sounds. Margaret wrote a book that is that's the basis of that book. But as you will read on her website, that book that was published with her name on it isn't her book. And uh, what they have to do if they want a copy of the original, they have to email me because my cheap website. Um, can't take that much um, data. So oh, okay. maybe it can now. I think they've improved it, but still, uh, I like when people write to me individually so I can, you know, get to know who's interested. A little while ago, you mentioned uh, the Enterprise episode, Carbon Creek, as well. And I, I had this vague feeling, and it had been many years since I read this book when I first watched Carbon Creek and I remember watching that episode thinking this feels very familiar somehow. And I've always kind of wondered there, there are a few similarities, not, not a ton, but I always wondered if whoever wrote that episode had maybe read your book and had this idea of the secret first contact between humans and Vulcans uh, in mind. <laughs> it's possible. I don't know who wrote it and I didn't watch enterprise either, except that Jack was in two episodes as um, as the Vulcan priest who does to Paul's wedding, but everybody, you know, when it came, you've got to watch Carbon Creek. It's like I hate the show. You got to watch. Car <laughs> All right, I'll watch Carbon Creek. Uh, it was entertaining, and I mean, the premise of Vulcans being lost and having to hide themselves on Earth. Yeah, that's very similar. But again, it's that cosmic wavelength. We're just all of us grabbing little pieces of it. So. I don't know. I will never know. It's okay. <laughs> oh, so I was going to ask you about the framing story we were talking about, uh, the book within the book. So the framing story takes place shortly before the Wrath of Khan, and then the rest of the story takes place right before we get to where no man has gone before. Why did you pick those periods? Um, gee, it's as if I could remember. Um. <laughs> Because obviously you love the original series and you love those three movies, two, three, and four. So I guess that has something to do with it. But I think I read somewhere in your in the re-release of your novel and the author's introduction, I think that they, because they had released Enterprise, the first adventure or something like that, that maybe they were staying in that time period. I don't know. Ah, oh, okay. Yeah, that's what happened. Um, because again, originally there were six books a year and... 
someone either at Pocket, and it had to be at Pocket because Paramount was like, the books are not canon, we're not interested, just pay us. Someone decided, you know, we need to kind of expand this a little. Let's put out some giant novels, big, fat novels that we can charge more for. Uh, and so Enterprise, the first adventure, was the first of those books. So Dave said, stay within that timeline. Um, because the uh, Enterprise, the first adventure, was Robert April's ship. Um, and then I had to put my story in when Kirk had just taken charge of the Enterprise. But I also really wanted to address the whole movie venue. So, yeah, it was a bit of a hassle to convince Dave that I could do this. And, yeah, I did screw up the timeline at one point. He said, you realize you've got this happening here when it should have happened there. I don't remember what the exact thing was. And it's like, okay, see, this is why writers need editors, because you can look <laughs> at this objectively and say, hey, dummy, you're 20 years ahead of your time here. Put it over there. So, yeah, he literally, I was in his office. He literally picked up the manuscript, took whatever chapter this was in, pulled out 12 pages and plunked them in earlier in the manuscript. He said, there, that's how it goes. And so I kind of crossed out the page numbers and penciled in the correct ones, and everybody was happy. Again, this is before computers. I didn't even have a word processor at that point. So it was, you write, and I used to write out in longhand. Uh, how my right hand hasn't dropped off, I don't know. But um, <laughs> write it out in longhand, type a, a raw copy, scribble all over it, type it again, go through it with the whiteout, type it again for a final copy. Um, took me forever, but that's how it, I used to do it. Nowadays, um, only when I get stuck, uh, you know, everything's on the computer, but when I get cross-eyed and it's like, where am I going with this? I'll pull out an old legal pad and just start scribbling. But yeah, to answer your original question, that's why it, the story within the story was set in the Enterprise with Gary Mitchell and that crew. Um, but then I wrapped my story around it. Which I really love the whole Gary Mitchell and that crew because we don't get many stories with that crew because, you know, two of yeah. them are gone by the time we see that pilot episode. So we get to see something that happens before that. And, you know, I fell in love with Kelso as I was writing him. I had to sort of shoo him away for 100 pages. It's like, all right, you're upstaging Kirk. Please, you know, go stay in the Midwest for a few hundred pages. And when I met Paul Carr years later, it's like, wow, he really is Gary Mitchell uh, or uh, Lee Kelso. He's just a sweet guy. So, yeah, the characters do get away from you sometimes. And it's like, hold up, hold up. Who's in charge here? I, I do love that it's set in that period as well, because it gives, I think, Kirk a really nice arc in that period as well, because he's just getting to know his new crew members now that he's taken command of the Enterprise, and in particular Spock. He really has no way, no idea how to relate to this Vulcan and makes assumptions that, you know, prove to be wrong and that sort of thing. So it, it's kind of neat that we get to see a little bit of how he comes around to becoming so close to Spock. And part of it is through his dealings with these two Vulcans who have crash landed in, in the 21st century as well. Wow. Well, okay. Thank you, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, another couple of characters back in the, the 21st century portion, 
uh, Jason Nair and Melody Sawyer. Uh, the- um, yeah, I, I liked that question because I had to stop and think. Jason came to me as a voice. He was James Earl Jones, oh. uh, which is hilarious because when I pulled the audio script out of it, which was like a tenth of the size of the novel, and they said, well, George Takei is going to do the narration. I said, oh, cool. The man can do voices. <laughs> and I just gave him little sketches, and I said, Jason should sound like James Earl Jones. And I listened to the audio tape, and it's like, my God, he's got it. He's absolutely got it. And then, of course, he's doing Melody. Um, Melody was based on a fan who wrote me a letter, and she was from Texas. Um, and killer tennis player, she told me, we, we just struck a chord. We were writing letters, you know, snail mail letters back and forth. Gave her my phone number, um, which I have since learned, not with her, but with other people, is not a good idea because there are needy people who will call you six times a day. And it's like, talk to the machine, sweetie. I'm busy right now. Um, I won't, won't mention her name. She had a lot of really abusive childhood doesn't cover it, but she transcended it, I thought. And we'd talk for hours, long distance rates, but still. And then she met this guy who was into shrooms and this, that, and the other. And um, he was diagnosed with a, um, a brain, an inoperable brain tumor and decided to starve him to self to death. She decided she couldn't live without him and she went with him. And that was... God, decades ago, and I still think about her. And we have a mutual friend. I'm still in touch with him. But Melody was from life. She was tough. I could see this real-life person picking up a weapon and, you know, holding the ship. Uh, She was just that tough, but not tough enough to save her own life. Tragic, yeah. Yeah, you know, and hearing George Takei try to do that voice, too, was quite interesting (laughs) in the audio. Oh, he's so, so good with the voices. And then the icing on the cake, of course, was having Leonard Nimoy do the the intro. And it's like, oh, and I have the tape here, and I've listened to it once. I can't listen to it again. Interestingly enough, it's the only thing that is still paying me royalties. Somewhere, somewhere, possibly in Japan, I don't know, someone is buying the audio version of this book, and I get a little royalty check for like $4.47 once or twice a year. It's bizarre. But Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad to hear that because, you know, I had the tapes, but just recently when we were revisiting this book, I went to Audible and bought it again and i didn't use one of my credits i actually because it's like six dollars fifty cents or something so there so your next check i i a few cents of those are mine okay two or three cents of that will be mine (laughs) excellent um the other two characters as well are the uh the agro botanists who shelter the two vulcans as well uh i was wondering if if there were kind of any inspirations for those characters well, Tatya was based on a high school friend who was Ukrainian, who was also no-nonsense. Just a big strapping woman who would, would have punched you out if you got her angry enough. 
I don't know where Yoshi came from, except I just have this thing for Japanese men. They're just so pretty. Um, <laughs> and I wanted the contrast. I wanted the kind of stocky blonde with this tall, gangly, almost looks like a Vulcan, I don't know what's going on kind of character. Uh, and then, of course, Tatya falls in love with the Vulcan, or at least has a crush on him, and Yoshi's clueless. Um, so it, it was just fun to play with them. Sometimes the characters just show up on my doorstep and say, you will put us in a book now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, um, I guess that's how that happened. That's one thing I loved is the the contrast between Tatya and Yoshi as well. I, I, I love that image of, you know, a really broad-shouldered uh, woman and then you describe him as very slight and skinny with long hair, Yoshi. And I, I just, they make a really cool pair. And I, I think they would be really neat to see realized on screen somehow. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. A lot of, a lot of characters should be, but that's, that's a nice thought. Thank you. I just love how you, you borrow from people that you've known to write characters because you know, you're talking about Star Trek and you're saying about the Star Trek characters you see on screen, you know their voices. But then when you're creating your own characters, you know those voices too because you know these people in real life. You know, and it's funny. I'm not very visual. I've got a problem with my left eye that wasn't diagnosed until I was 11. So I was walking around squinting at things. But my hearing is too acute. Uh, I love... Well, back when I used to watch television instead of streaming everything, I used to love listening to voiceovers on commercials. And I'd be sitting there with somebody and I'd say, all right, that's Peter Coyote. Uh, that's Mark Leonard. And they're looking at me like, how do you know that? It's like, listen to the voice. I hear before I see is what it comes down to. People are always, I don't take photographs. I'm a lousy photographer. Um, yeah, as I was reading this book, and I do love all the characters in here, and we're talking about Yoshi and these others, and they're dealing with this first contact with the Vulcans. And is Earth ready to handle it this time? That's a big question in this book. And, and my question for you is, now, in this day and age, are we ready for a first contact, do you think? <laughs> I've been asked that. I've been asked that ever since the book came out. Really? Okay. And I, my answer, well... I used to do a lot of conventions when I lived in New York. My answer has always been the same. If there are aliens out there observing us, they are laughing their asses off and saying, oh, let's try someplace else. And it's never been more true than today. Mm -hmm. Now more so than ever, I think. Yeah. yeah. Do you really think they're laughing or do you think they're saying, oh, I think we need to help? Uh, well, I believe the Vulcans invented the Prime Directive. No, we are left to our own devices. Because, again, if some superior being came to this earth, they'd be taken as gods. We'd have a whole new religion to deal with, along with Scientology and all that stuff. So I, I think not. Well, I'm glad mm. that the Klingons won't be the first to make contact <laughs> with us. <laughs> well, kind of following that, that similar vein, I you know, Today, we're kind of close to where Earth is uh, in the 21st century portion of your novel. And, and I'm, I'm speaking strictly time-wise, not, mm. uh, not ideological-wise or <laughs> anything like that. Um, I'm, I'm curious if, you know, and, and I think I can probably anticipate this answer. 
has the world turned out anything close to how you imagined it would be when you sat down to write this book? Oh, hell no. Um, you know, um, it's like, who was it writing about flying cars in the 1950s pulp <laughs> novels? We seem to be doing three steps forward, two steps back. We should have completely renewable energy by now. We should have kelp farms in the middle of the Pacific. What have we got? Idiots in office telling us that windmills kill birds and they give people cancer. So, no, uh, we will not get there within my grandchildren's lifetimes. It's, there are too many stupid people in charge is what it comes down to. And you, to borrow from, um, who's the comedian, Ron White, you can't fix stupid. <laughs> yeah. No, it's, it's, yeah, it's really sad. Cause I remember, you know, as a kid or, you know, even as a teenager thinking that we were on this trajectory and it was just up and up and up. And, you know, of course there were bad things happening and setbacks and that sort of thing. But yeah, that view, that, that idea, it's been shattered <laughs> lately and uh, it, it's, it's really too bad. This is, it really feels like we're not on that path right now. And, you know, I, I think maybe someday we will be again, but right now the trajectory is not in that direction. <laughs> no, um, but I think we're going to do some housekeeping in November. I hope to God we are. There's no foresight. There's no, the whole philosophy is what's in it for me. And I don't know if, if it was always this bad or the internet just makes it seem that bad, but the uproar over wearing a mask, you know? Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and that's, yeah, that's where it comes from is kind of the hypocrisy of, you know, all these people, I don't know, just believing the, <laughs> the totally wrong people. Right. I guess. right. But you know, they need to realize the earth is flat. So, <laughs> you know, honestly, Ugh. um, yeah. <laughs> so we're not ready for first contact. I think that's what we're... I think that's I think the takeaway. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Thank you for bringing me back inside here. Um. Well, one thing I wanted to talk a bit about is uh, the legacy of this novel. So, you know, it's it's fairly early in the pocketbooks run of Star Trek novels, and I feel like it's had a number of knock-on effects. I, I think, like, for example... Uh, Dayton Ward has brought it up a few times in novels that he's written uh, as a favorite novel of Jean-Luc Picard. And in the uh, <laughs> post-Nemesis uh, novel verse, he reads it to his son or something oh, like that. Oh, there's a lovely story behind that. I have to tell you about oh, um Excellent. <laughs> well, first of all, Proviso, uh, I have not read a Star Trek novel in a long time because there are too many of them. They're writing them faster than I can read. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> David George is a good friend of mine, and once in a while, well, he's not in L.A. anymore, but when he lived in L.A., we, he and his wife and Jack and I would hook up and, you know, have coffee. Or uh, Karen's really into high tea in these uh, little British tea shops. Okay, fine. Um, I'm gluten intolerant. There are maybe three things on this menu I can eat, but, but anyway... Um, Karen's an actress, Jack was an actress, so they'd be talking shop on one side of the table, David and I would be talking shop on the other side, and he's like, 
had you, did you read my latest novel? I said, which one? You write them faster than I can read them. What are you, Peter David? Um, <laughs> oh, I'm sure but, he liked that. Oh, he, he loves the guy. You know, he, he loves the whole thing. He's, he's still a fanboy. But anyway, oh, how many years ago was this? Um, okay. The year my first grandkid was born. And you notice I'm being cautious. I don't even mention the gender of my grandkids because I have stalkers. Um, my last shore leave. Um, and, you know, they always had this big book signing on Friday nights to get people to come in. And all the writers sit there at these big, long tables, and we sign books. And Dayton Ward was signing at one end. And at one point, he excused himself. I figured, all right, he's going to the men's room, whatever. He comes to my line, and I'm signing. You know, how many had I written at the point? Anyway, he sidles up to me with a battered, like, falling apart copy of Strangers from the Sky. And... He just turned into a little kid. He said, you know, this is the first novel I ever read. I was in the service, and I had nothing else to read. And, God, I love this book. I thought he was going to cry. Would you sign it for me, please? <laughs> and I said, sure. And, you know, big, tough Marine. And he's, <laughs> he's like a little kid. And that was one of the sweetest moments ever. Um, another one is that there are several young women named Shiel from Dwellers in the Crucible. Um, and one of them wrote to me, she said, you know, I hated my name when I was a kid. I go by TJ, by my initials. But she said, since I've been on Facebook, I've found two other women my age with that name. My father read your book. He loved it. He named me after your Vulcan character. And it's like, you know, that's better wow. than the bestseller list. So, Yeah. You know, a lot of the Doctor Who actors will say, well, it's not me, it's the Doctor. People love the Doctor. No. Some people, the very young fans, loved Matt Smith. They had fits when Peter Capaldi took over. I said, oh, finally, a grown-up. And in fact, <laughs> um, one of the senior uh, Doctor Who actors, when they said, you know, Peter Capaldi's taking over, he said the same thing, finally, a grown-up. Um, <laughs> but to each his own. But the thing is, each actor infuses, and each novelist infuses their particular flavor into the novels. So if other people find that and resonate with it, it's a gift. I'm grateful for that. And this, again, is the Star Trek effect. Um, Co-wrote Saturn's Child with Nichelle Nichols, um, but it was her name that carried it. Oh, that, that was another high in my life. Uh, Strangers was a high. Working with Nichelle, I think it's terrible what's been happening to her lately. Um, I'm going to miss the hell out of her when she's gone. I haven't seen her in decades, but she invited me to be her house guest. Two occasions working. Most of the time I was working at home in Brooklyn using a fax machine to send her chapters and she'd call me up and say, fix this, fix that, change this, change that. But for the last chapter, she invited me out the second time in, in the rainy season, um, <laughs> sandbags all around her property. Um, and we hammered out the last chapter sentence by sentence. And she was like, now I want this happen and this happens. And I knew her well enough by now 
to say, "Hun, I think you should write it out, because you wrote everything out in longhand. You write it out. I'll go over to your office. I'll type it out on your computer, which I'm just learning how to use. I'll print it out. We'll go over it together. And there was this pause. And you know the look that she gives Mr. Adventure in the search for Spock? That look <laughs> under those eyelashes, that sideways glance. It's like, uh-oh, I'm getting the look. <laughs> and she said, you're putting me to work? I said, yes, ma'am. And big smile. Well, all right then, I'll see you later. And she went off into her bedroom and I didn't see her for like three hours, and she came out with pages and pages and pages, and that was how the last chapter got put together. And it was a romp. It was a whole lot of fun. That's never going to happen again, but, you know, and again, it sold because of her name, not because of mine. And then, of course, she had to do all the autographs and all the personal appearances mm -hmm. and stuff, mm -hmm. and I was like, yep, on to the next. Um, but that's the writing business. Yeah. Wow, yeah. So in the uh, in the Star Trek universe, uh, the most recent novel uh, from 2010 was Unspoken Truth. Is there a possibility we might see you write for Star Trek again? Oh, probably not. Um, because while I was finishing that, or you know, doing the final fixes on it, uh, CBS bought Pocketbooks along with. Paramount, and they, oh, I love this word, downsized. They mm. downsized the Star Trek department. I'm going to use a profanity here. Um, they canned Marco Palmieri, who was brilliant. He was right on my wavelength, never had a mm -hmm. problem. He got me back into the franchise after an 11-year hiatus, shall we say, when the person who had been in charge at Paramount was saying that women and slashed Music of the Spheres. Um, and then nobody else would touch me. Uh, Dave Stern left. His, the guy who came in after him said, no, I, I can't work with her. I'm, they're, they're standing over my shoulder. Um, the guy who replaced him. Uh, anyway. I had the satisfaction of being at an icon in Long Island, and I'm sitting in the green room, which was upstairs, and the then editor at Pocket Books was coming up the stairs, saw me sitting there, did the fastest U-turn you've ever seen a fat man make, and ran down the stairs because he just didn't want to talk to me. But okay, so Marco came in, did some wonderful things, and he was told to clean out his desk while my book was sitting on his desk, um, Margaret Clark took over. She was ushered out the door, I think the day after she finalized my manuscript. I don't even know who's in charge there. Now, God, has it been 10 years? Yeah. I don't even know who's running the franchise or running the pocketbooks end of it. I do not watch, as you might have guessed, any of the new flavors. I can't keep up with it. This CBS all-access thing is infuriating. Why does the rest of the world get it on Netflix and we have to sign up for added content with commercials? Thank you. I gave it the one-week trial to watch Discovery because I like Jason Isaacs. And I said, no, there are more commercials than there is show. I can't do this. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. This is not my Star Trek. 
I hate to sound old, but this is not my Star Trek. Um, you know, if somebody like Marco was in charge and said, listen, this is what we're doing. Are you interested? But it's never going to happen. I don't have an agent. My agent passed away in 2016. I can't get arrested in the brick and mortar uh, book business anymore. Nobody wants to be my agent. Nobody wants to read my manuscript. And these online publishers don't even answer their email. So I'm self-publishing. I'm sell selling like four copies of my books a year. Who knows? But well, it's too early to tell, but I've met someone who's a, um, he's an appearance manager. He knew Jack, Jack knew him, so met him through Jack, and I don't know, something, may, he said, you know, why aren't you writing? <laughs> and I told him this long story, and he said, well, I can't promise you anything, but let me ask around. So, uh, but no, mm -hmm. no more Star Trek, alas. Well, never say never. I mean, I... I haven't been an agent, but I could become your agent and pull a few <laughs> strings here and there and we can get you going. Well, in the meantime, you should write your book. And this is what I tell people who had, well, used to tell people who would come up to me at cons and God, some of them would have the whole paper bound manuscript with them. Well, I wrote this Star Trek novel and I was hoping you could look at it. Buddy, move on. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're going to pay me, I cannot do this. Uh, mm -hmm. And then it graduated to discs and thumb drives, but they'd still follow me around. And it's like, you know what? Take your Star Trek idea. Change the names. Do not mention Starfleet. Do not mention any of the characters. Write your own original science fiction novel and try to sell it that way because you've got a better chance, first of all, and because you can't. Look at the people who are writing Star Trek. It's a very select club at this point. It's not going to work. And I'm not going to... Oh, some of them. The nerve on some of them. Well, I figured I'd give it to you. You'd put your name on it and we'd split the royalty. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. Security. <laughs> you <know>? Yeah. <laughs> they don't understand how it works. And you... But anyway, seriously, Bruce, write your own novel. Well, I, I feel more comfortable writing my own novel because I know, even though I've read 400 Star Trek novels and seen all the series, I'm going to screw something up and everybody's going to complain about it. If I do my own thing, the <laughs> rules are mine. You know? Exactly. Exactly. Absolutely. Uh, going back to uh, something you'd said a while ago, I, I just wanted to add uh, Marco Palmieri. Uh, everything I've heard, and I've heard a number of people say he is just the the consummate professional and great editor. And uh, absolutely, so I, I just wanted to echo that because I've I've heard that a lot. So that's absolutely, excellent. I think he was the last editor to buy me lunch. Um, <laughs> but I mean, he's intuitive. He's smart. He was when Pocket deep sixed him. He was out of work for a long time. Um, but he's at Tor Books now. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, Tor was another one that did my other my preternatural trilogy in hardcover, and nothing came of that either. But mm, that's another editor who shall remain nameless. Um, the guy went on sabbatical for eight months and left my manuscript sitting on his desk unread. Oh, that is frustrating. <laughs> Well, uh, you mentioned your website. Uh, if you want to just mention that again, that's probably the best place for our listeners to kind of, uh, you know, 
check out what you're working on now and, and what's going on with you. And that was uh, margaretwanderbonano.com. Is that correct? Yes, all one word. Um, and um, yeah, I've been neglecting it because I spent way too much time on Facebook and message boards wrangling with people about politics and one thing and another. <laughs> Well, if you want to follow the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at Positively Trek. I'm at Kurtratz. And Bruce, we haven't really discussed this, but we're going to set up something on Facebook and maybe elsewhere that's going to kind of have a list of books coming up that we're going to be covering on the show. So keep an eye out for that in the Facebook group and possibly elsewhere as well. Yeah, we haven't figured that out yet. Well, we have... Uh... You, so you're our first guest here in the book club, and I think our next guest is going to be David Mack, who I'll probably have to bleep quite a bit. We'll see. <laughs> but he's got a new book called More Beautiful Than Death, which is based on those movies by J.J. Abrams. So I assume you won't be reading that book, but we will be because, you know, we read it all. Well, more power to you. And I've never met David Mack, but give him my best. I know him by reputation. And yeah, I'm going to, um, Dan sent me some links to uh, what you've got going on now. Um, so I'll, I'll check those out on your site, but I am not joining Twitter. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, you know, good luck, guys. This looks like a great venture. Well, thank you. Well, it's off to a great start. I mean, I, I think you know, having you on the first episode, I think, uh, such a great voice in uh, Star Trek books, and, and this was a lot of fun for sure. Well, thanks again, and I better hang up or we'll be doing this all night. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, and we'll be in touch. Okay. Take Absolutely. care, guys. Bye. Bye. Take care. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.